this is the best week of the year by far. I, I know as a pastor, I'm supposed to say that Easter is my favorite holiday. It is. And what, what God did in resurrection is by far the best. Absolutely. Par, par none. And then a close, close second is Christmas, of course, which is coming up. Um, what God did in incarnation, equally amazing. But as an indulgent, lazy, gluttonous carnivore, I like to enjoy the day where I can eat mounds of food and sit on the couch and watch football. Amen? Am I the only one? Am I the only one here that's just like, I love Thanksgiving? And um, of course, the traditions that we have at Thanksgiving time, it, it's, uh, they're found many families do this. Uh, maybe you can relate. My family, we, we like to take piping hot food. It's just a feast is prepared. You don't get a body like this without th- eating Thanksgiving, guys. Come on. And uh, so we have tons of food. And uh, this year I built the table that we're going to be eating around, which is kind of fun. But we're going to put the piping hot food on the table, and we're going to stand around the table. And we're not going to sit down. We're going to hold hands. And we're going to create, really, and, and make the, the one Thanksgiving sin that should not be made, and that's to thank our food cold. We hold hands. We do this thing where we say, what are you thankful for this year? Do you guys do this? Stop doing this. This is awful. This is a travesty. You should eat hot Thanksgiving food. Little tip, if you're called upon to pray this this year at Thanksgiving meal, make it short. Amen? Here's a better way. Let me just teach you as a pastor a better way. You don't have to act all spiritual before the meal. You can actually share what God's done in your life while you're eating great turkey. That's the way to eat Thanksgiving is to be thankful while you eat. Amen? All right? So just to, all right, all right. Tell my family, please, that this is the way it should go. Um, but for us, this year has been a banner year for, for the Jacobsons. We have a lot of things to be thankful for. And I, as Thanksgiving approaches, I think about this moment that's going to come up and like what I'm going to say. It's one of those things that you have to like, you have to come re- rehearsed at our family because you might look like a fool or an ingrate if you don't. And so I've been thinking a lot of it, and it's really obvious for us this year. that This has been a birth year for us. We were given the gift of a son, uh, Graham Warren. And I remember these days uh, back in March when he was born, people were asking, you know, how, how'd it go, and yada, yada, and how you doing? And I remember just saying this word, uh, this phrase. I remember saying to people, like, man, I'm just beyond thankful. Just beyond thankful. Like, thankfulness doesn't even cut it. I'm like, beyond thankful. Like there's something in me that's overflowing with gratitude that the only word I can use to describe it is just like beyond and beyond thankful. You ever been beyond thankful for something? I don't know what it is that you're beyond thankful for, but we all know what it's like to be overflowing with thankfulness. And uh, it's good to be thankful. Scripture speaks in many ways to the beauty of the heart that is cultivated thanksgiving to the Lord. I could read passage after passage that talks about that. But the reality is there's far more at stake in giving thanks than simply saying the words, thank you, to God. There's far more at stake in the Christian life than simply feeling blessed by God or singing songs on a Sunday that make us feel thankful. Sadly, too many Christians are clueless as to what Thanksgiving actually looks like, what above and beyond thankfulness actually is. And as a church, we here don't want to stop short of what God deserves, Amen. And so I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke that helps us understand what it is to live above and beyond thankful lives. Above and beyond thankful living. That's the title of my message today. It's just above and beyond thankful. 
In Luke 7, as you're turning there, I'll just give you a little history of what's going on here. Jesus was invited over to the house of a Pharisee. His name was Simon. The Pharisees were one of the religious groups that were trying to kill Jesus. But that, it just blows my mind, that never stopped Jesus from hanging out with them and eating with them. You often see him inter, inter, uh, inter, invited over to one of their houses and he says, sure, let's eat. I think Jesus would be all in on Thanksgiving meals. And it was customary in that day for prominent people to host prominent guests in their home, either just to feed them and to, to bless them or to have a conversation and a dialogue to maybe understand their political stance on an issue or just to simply host a meet and greet so that the community members might come into their house and meet this prominent person and associate that prominent person with the host. It was all ostentatious. It was always a way to show off. This was so ingrained in the culture that, um, you know, for us, you build a house, you build an open floor plan. You don't like, we don't like walls today. We come in, knock them all down. We want them to be like open so that everybody can see what's going on at the same time. And it was very similar back then. They would build their homes kind of in a U-shape. It would be around a courtyard. In the center of the courtyard was a, a giant table. It was a feast. It was a place that you would all eat and gather. There'd be no, no chairs at this table. It was low to the ground. If you show up at Thanksgiving and there's no chairs, you just walk right back out. You come to my house. Okay, we got chairs. Um, but back in this day, you didn't eat in a chair. You would eat actually um, reclining on a couch. You would lean on your left hand, and you would grab the food with your right hand, and you would eat that way. And your, your body was sort of extending away from the table so that your feet were as far away from the table as they could be. Now, that's a good rule, right? Because nobody likes feet where their food is. Like, if, if you come over and you see my kids doing that thing where they put their feet up on the table, I scold them. I'm like, get your nasty feet off the table, right? We don't want that around our food. It's the same, same today. And so um, these were ostentatious displays of wealth. The doors to the home, they'd be wide open. The host would extend an open invitation to the townspeople to attend and watch the meal take place. You, everyone was invited. You weren't invited to eat. You were invited to watch. And so people from the town would come. They would come in they, partly to see what the house looked like, partly to see who designed what, but other part is to, to, to hear the person who was being honored that day. So people would come and go at these events as they pleased, always interested in the pomp and circumstance, and of that there was much. Ordinarily, a guest of honor in a house would be greeted with a kiss of peace. You could try this at Thanksgiving this week. That'd be awesome. Just kiss every one of the guests. Welcome to our home. Most hosts would put out a bench with a little basin of water and a towel for the guests to have their feet washed. And if you're really prominent, you actually hire a servant to come do this job for them. It's sort of like a dinner and petty combo deal, I guess. Guests were also given a small touch of olive oil for their skin to hydrate them. It's like ancient Burt's Bees. Today, you come over to our house. Here's what we do. We simply say hi, we shake your hand, we take your coat, and we offer you something to drink. That's what we do. That's kind of like our social code. And, and you think about how awkward it would be if you came over to my house, and I didn't say hi to you, and I didn't shake your hand, and I didn't take your coat, and I didn't offer you anything to eat or drink. That would be awful. With that in mind, let's look at verse 36 of Luke 7, because what Luke records as Jesus' experience, his description of these events would have shocked 
any first century Jew. He writes this. He says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. This seems very straightforward. Jesus accepts the invitation. He shows up. He sits down at the table to eat. No problem. Except there's no pomp. There's no circumstance. Jesus simply walks into the house and sits where he's assigned. No handshake, no take your coat, no here's a cold drink. The awkwardness is only just beginning in this situation because out of the crowd of nobodies came an uninvited woman who injected herself into the scene. Look with me at verse 37. Luke says this, he says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Luke gives us three clues here right off the bat here in verse 47 of why this woman is probably bad news. He says this, he says, and behold, which is kind of like watch out. A woman of the city, which is to say, this is someone who conducts her business affairs on the street. Then if, if that hasn't made it clear yet, he says this, who was a sinner? Now, welcome to church. Aren't we all sinners? Amen. That's who we are, right? Luke is not making a theological point here. He's saying, this is such a well-known fact that this woman was a sinner that everybody knew it. She was bad news. She had, a, she had a reputation. If this woman had a theme song, it would be, voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? You know that song? That's, that's it's the only French I know, and it's awful. It's absolutely awful. Someone teach me something good. This is the woman who emerges from the onlookers and approaches Jesus in view of all the people. She stands behind Jesus at his feet, weeping crying uncontrollably. She is so moved by Jesus that she begins, um, there's a phrase we use for it, it's called ugly crying. She begins ugly crying. You ever ugly cried before? Something so devastating happens, you start just convulsing and heaving, you can't stop, and you know if you looked in the mirror, you'd hate the person you'd see. My two-year-old is like this. He has not learned how to pretty cry. It's, it's, it's alligator tears. It's Runny nose, it's I can't stop this. And she's so moved that her tears begin to fall. I imagine in the middle of this courageous yet taboo moment, she realizes that her tears are accidentally falling on Jesus' feet. That's how hard she's crying. I think she thinks to herself, Great, I'm making a fool of myself. I'm so sorry. What can I do to clean this up? How can I take care of this? And she thinks, and she goes, I, I just take my hair and just kind of mop it up a little bit. I'll, I'll dry it. And so she undoes her hair. She lets it down. She begins to wipe his feet, which is maybe that's effective. But there's a massive problem with this culturally. The Talmud, which is what the rabbis would have taught from, it says that a woman should never let down her hair except in the presence of her husband. And to do so is a sexually charged act. So watching this scene unfold, 
bad reputation woman coming up to the guest of honor, standing behind him, ugly crying, and then trying to wipe his feet, doing something that would be so perceived as sensual, you as someone in the crowd that day would not want to watch. You start to back away. You might even do this because of what was happening. You'd feel so ashamed for her. And if you, if you turned your head, if you tried not to look, certainly everything in the room stopped and there was silence except for the sobs of this woman. Even if you couldn't watch, you would hear her kissing his feet. And even if you tried to look away, the moment she popped open that alabaster jar of perfume, it would waft into the air and your nostrils would not allow you to forget what was happening. This woman was tending to Jesus. And we have no reason in our culture, we're a very sexualized culture, we have no reason today to believe that anything happening here was out of nefarious uh, uh, attitudes. We see clearly from the perfume that she gives, Jesus, that this was an honest act of someone who loved Jesus dearly, who so valued who he was. We believe this alabaster jar of ointment, it's what you would have put pure nard in. This would be the most expensive of all the perfumes. For her, it probably cost a whole year's wages. For this woman who would turn tricks for cash out on the street, sorry for the expression, uh, she probably was wealthy. She probably had many means, although she came by them indecently. I looked up today the most expensive bottle of perfume that you can buy, just in case you guys want to get it for your wife for Christmas. It's Clive Christian, number one, Imperial Majesty perfume. It's so rare. I tried to Google it, and everybody's sold out. How is it sold out? It's $12,000 an ounce. Now, don't freak out. Black Friday's coming, so maybe you can score a deal. <laughs> we see a recklessness in this woman in the way that she lived her life, no doubt. But we also see a recklessness in this woman in the way that she comes to appreciate Jesus, in the way that she comes to worship Jesus, she's reckless and extravagant with her giving praise to him. She loved Jesus, and for good reason. She had for most of her life lived with an immense guilt. She was in violation of God's commandment. I think it's the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Those who lived in the city reminded her of how grimy she was. She was trash. And yet before Jesus, she was made whole. She was given a heart that was white as snow. And though she washed Jesus' feet, he had washed her soul. And her kisses were not the kiss of deception or betrayal or cunning entrapment, but they were acts of adoration and worship. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, and that's what she was doing. In all these things, we see a woman who is beyond thankful. This woman comes into the scene and she represents for us what it is to be beyond thankful. And notice how Jesus doesn't push her away or shame her. He doesn't recoil away from her, but he, he receives her. A public sinner condemned by the self-righteous world around her. And despite this being a dinner party, not a single word has been spoken yet. 
which might seem odd to us. That'll change in a moment. Luke has yet to record any conversation. And before he does, he gives us a glimpse into Simon the Pharisee's heart, the one who is hosting the dinner party. In verse 39, Simon, he sees the actions of the woman and how Jesus doesn't recoil in disgust. And he thinks privately to himself. Check this out. Look look at verse 39. This is what Simon's assessment of the situation is. If this man, Jesus, if he were really a prophet, if he had at least some divine connection, if he had at least some word from God, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. In this one sentence, Simon gives us everything that we need to know about him right here. If this woman is coming to Jesus out of a pure, sincere thankfulness, the rest of the story, we see that this woman in her thankfulness is completely the opposite of Simon in his self-righteousness. Simon acts in a way That's completely a foil to this woman. And if this woman is beyond thankful, I want you to see this. Simon is above thankfulness. He's too good for being thankful. Check check this out. He, He says this, ironically casting judgment upon Jesus. He says, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. He can't be from God. He's obviously a fake. Luke makes this very clear in verse 40 that not only did Jesus know what sort of a woman she was, but Jesus also knew the thoughts that Simon was having as this scene unfolded. So, don't judge Jesus so quickly, Simon. But if this woman was beyond thankful, so thankful that she was moved to do something about it, Simon shows us what it looks like to be above thankfulness. His prideful heart inflated his ego. He was not thankful for Jesus' presence, but rather he was ashamed that he had allowed someone who would allow such an act to occur in his house. Jesus was not good enough to be in Simon's presence. And this woman was certainly not good enough to be in Simon's presence. Notice what he says. It'd be one thing if Luke 7, 39 read read this way. If he really were a prophet, he would have known who this is who is touching him. But the text actually reads this. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what, say it with me. What sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. What sort is she? She's the kind we don't associate with. She's the dirty kind, the stained kind, the wicked kind, the problem with this generation kind. She's the kind of woman the world is better off without. Like, do you hear the sheer superiority in his voice? Do you hear the high and mighty attitude behind his thoughts? Do you hear the sheer, um, to use a a, a current word, um, supremacy in his heart? Here we are in 2017. We thought supremacy was a, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century problem in America. But no, it's a millennia old problem that stems 
from thankfulness or a lack thereof. Supremacists believe in their hearts that they are better than that sort of person. They are above other people. Because of that, they are above thankfulness. Supremacists will look around in a room and size people up and place themselves in a hierarchical pecking order and then assume that everyone else below them owes them some sort of gratitude or thankfulness or needs to get out of their way and pay them honor. We need to watch our hearts for moments when we act in our supremacy, saying things like, this sort of woman, these people, that race, those, uh, they're the problem with our society. Listen, Simon the Pharisee is a supremacist. He's not a white supremacist. He's not a gender supremacist. He is a moral and religious supremacist. And Jesus had had enough with Simon. Simon hasn't said a word, but in his actions and in his thoughts, Simon the supremacist is condemned. Notice in verse 40 what Jesus says. Answering him, he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answered, well, say it, teacher. For goodness gracious, it's a dinner conversation. Let's have some conversation. Look at what Jesus says. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? I'm going to stop right there because that's a really nifty little parable that Jesus tells. And I want to just unpack it a little bit for us. In this day of denarii, it was just a coin or it was a way of getting paid a certain amount. Usually, you get paid one denarii per day that you worked. And so here we see uh, some shark on Shark Tank had people working for them and said, hey, uh, you need 50 denarii to, to start this thing up. That's great. I'll give you 50 denarii. You need 500. Well, that's a lot. It's 500 days labor. That's about a year and a half, a little over a year and a half that you owe me. I don't know. You can't take a profit until you pay me back, but sure, I'll give you the money. And it's so brilliant by Jesus what he does in this parable because seeing someone who is self-righteous and someone who is so self-forgetful in his presence in the same time. He plays to Simon's ego. As if to say, Simon, you know what, man? You're right. This woman here, she is 10 times the sinner that you are. This woman here, she's got a lot more working to do to work her way back from her debt. Simon, you're 10 times better than her. We get that. But Simon... What you fail to realize is that neither one of you have enough to pay your debt. And the moment that your debt is cleared, not by your own doing, but because the money lender canceled the debt, which of the two of you is going to be more thankful? If you look at verse 43. Luke said, Simon answered, which I think in the, in the Greek means he looked at the ground, he kicked his feet, and he kind of softly said with his shoulder shrug, I guess the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus says, you've judged rightly for a first. And then verse 43, Jesus goes to work on Simon. Verse 44, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the moment I came in here, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with precious ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And herein lies the heart of above and beyond thankful. I want to draw out a few observations about these two people, what they teach us about the heart that is above thankfulness, that is represented by Simon. And in the other heart, is more aspirational heart for us to aspire to living our lives beyond thankful, to, to, to go beyond thankfulness in our lives. The first thing I want you to see is this. We've already seen it, but we have to realize this. And if you take notes in church, you should probably write this down. This would be something for you to take home and think about today. That beyond thankful people, they are aware of their debt. Beyond thankful people are aware of their debt. Say, so Dan, what do you mean? Well, well, looking back at the text, Luke makes it clear twice that this woman was a sinner. Everyone, including her, knew it. She knew she didn't measure up. She knew that the, the world and God had expected more from her, and she didn't measure up. The, the financial term, if you're in debt and you can't pay it, is insolvent. She was insolvent. She could not do it. And somehow, her awareness of her poverty created in her a richness of thanksgiving. But on the other hand, we see Simon... His problem was that he did not see his own sin. He was spiritually blinded by his own morality. Have you ever, this is so annoying. I'm sure it's happened to you. Have you ever hung out with a friend of yours who just cannot see their own imperfections? And they'll sit down with you over a cup of coffee or they'll call you or you'll be in a class together or something and they'll always be pointing out what other people do. And you just want to hold up a mirror, right? You're just like, dude, come on. Like, have some grace for other people because you need grace, man. Um, the Bible and our world today has a word for these people. We call them hypocrites. Expecting the world to live up to their standards but at the same time failing to live up to them themselves. Expecting the world to act one way and saying that that's what would I do, but then in, in reality not keeping their end of the deal. <laughs> and listen, if you are not aware that you are broke and bankrupt before God, you cannot be thankful. You will live your life feeling your sense of supremacy. You will live your life feeling like you are above thankfulness. You will live your life feeling as if you deserve yourself to be thanked by the other people around you. You will live your life assuming that God should thank you for the way that you've kept his commandments. Which means that if you don't realize the debt of your sin, you actually cannot worship and adore Jesus. 
The irony here in this story is that Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and come up short of God's standards, which means that every one of us here in this room is not above God's standards. Instead, we are deeply in debt to God. And when we're aware of our debt, we can grow in our thankfulness for what God has done, which brings us to the second reality of beyond thankful living that I want us to see here in the story from this woman. Second thing is this, write this down. Beyond thankful people have an attitude of dependence. An attitude of dependence. You want to grow in your thankfulness? Recognize the fact that on your own, you are not enough. This woman realized that she was in debt and that she could not pay. Simon, on the other hand, acted as if he was the master of his own destiny. Jesus had come to his house to be his guest. All he needed to depend on was just being better than other people. This woman showed humble receptivity to Jesus while Simon showed arrogant rejection of Jesus. And what's true for us today is that we who know we are sinners need to know that we need help. We need to know we need help. You need at some point in your life to confess the all-freeing truth that you need help. Uh, I had this experience not too long ago, and please forgive me for what I'm about to say. A couple weeks ago, I was working on my house. Um, I was getting ready for winter. My wife and I bought this. Really, we like our house. It's a nice house. And we bought this house, and, and we've been working on it a couple of years, and, and not, it's gotten cold on us. And now it's getting cold outside, and just getting ready for winter, and um, I, uh, I decided to just check in my attic to see what was going on up there because it seemed like we had no insulation. And I went upstairs and I walked around the attic. I realized like over my youngest son, he was eight months old now, his, young, his room was literally an inch of insulation, like this much insulation. And me being the um, DIY expert that I am, I said, well, I know how to fix that. I'll get some insulation. And so I, uh, early Saturday morning, not too long ago, I, um, I went to Home Depot. I didn't buy, I bought a lot of insulation. I bought pallets worth of insulation. Because I'm the type of guy that likes to correct problems, if you know what I mean. We're not just going to fix this. We're going to fix this, right? Like, you're never walking in my attic again because it's going to be filled to the brim with insulation. That's what we're talking about here. So I go and I get this, like, blown-in stuff, and I get this machine, and... Um, you need two people to run it. One of you stands up top with a little hose. It's super fun. I really love this job. So you're like blowing in insulation the whole time. I'm calculating how much money I'm saving on my NIPSCO bill. And, uh, and, and the other person, the harder job, the more grunt work, which I assigned to one of my friends from my small group who was glad to come learn about how to blow in insulation, was to take the little packages and shove them into this machine that would then like mulch them up and send them through a chute and then all, all that. This is what it looked like for me up in my attic. This is me um, having a great time. One of the guys who was in the first service texted me this day, asked what I was doing, and I shot him this picture back saying this. And uh, you can see, like, you, you, you just, it's a beautiful job. It's, a be it's so, so good. Put my phone back in my pocket, and um, about four minutes later, I started to work on a different section of the, of the attic, and um, I uh, don't know what happened, but say I was texting and driving, per se, and veered off the road, and uh, this happened. 
I'm fine. Thanks for asking. <laughs> All right? What actually happened was I, I, don't, I don't remember it. It happened really fast. Uh, there was a crack, and I fell, and I put my arms out, and I caught myself. I'm fine. I kid you not. I don't even have a scratch. And um, I was hanging in my attic from my neck up. <laughs> my friend, who is probably regretting the fact that he ever volunteered to help, almost had the ceiling fall on him because he was standing right next to where that machine is, where that light is. And um, he was dazed and confused, to say the, the least. I had to say to him, hey, man, can you bring that ladder, put it over here so I can get down? And uh, he, let me, he helped me get down, and I looked up. I laughed because it's a proper response in this moment because it's like, huh. and, and I love this. If it was me helping a friend at their house and they fell through their ceiling, I would literally do this. I'd say, well, looks like you got to call someone. <laughs> Let's close the door and, and walk away. And my buddy, he goes, he goes okay, so um, what do we do? I was like, well, I got a sheet of drywall in the basement. You start throwing the fiberglass, which had all fallen into our bedroom below. You start piling that into garbage pans. Maybe we can get this fixed before my wife finds out. <laughs> True story. Kristen was in the basement. She didn't hear a single thing. I successfully got a four by eight sheet of drywall up the stairs by myself. I was so motivated before she even knew that there was a problem. And so my, my buddy, he starts just going to work and starts just piling stuff in bags and this is three hours into our project. We're exhausted. We were at the home stretch, and now there's this hole in my seat. You can take that down. It's really hard for me to look at. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, he, we're, he's like, okay, what do we do next? And I said, well, uh, you, you pile this up. I'll start cutting the drywall and start making this thing fit. And there's like, y'all, that's not a Dan Jacobson-sized hole. That's like, like Godzilla fell through my <laughs> ceiling. And so we got a lot of work to do, and those sheets are heavy, and um, we're getting ladders out, and, and I don't have the right... Drills and stuff, it's a mess. And, and here's my friend, he's going, what can I do? I'll just hold it up for you? Okay, great. And so I, I size the thing, I put it up there, it's the wrong size, we pull it back down. And he goes, okay, hope we got it this time. I cut a couple more things, I put it up there, and he's huffing and puffing because I made him, work, made him work today. And wrong size, we got to pull it down again. Finally, the third try, we get it up there. We patch it all up, we're, we're done in an hour, it's amazing. And he says, well, um, you got the machine through the end of the day. You want me to help you finish the job? I said, well, I, I can't do this by myself, so yeah. So I headed back up to the attic, and this time I looked up because it was sealed off. And I was like, how did I come to? Oh, right, fell. So I get back up there, and I don't move at all. I just stand there with a hose shooting from a distance, and we finish the job. He helped me. He could barely lift the machine in my car to take it back that night. And, um, <laughs> I called him up right afterwards because I was... It just hit me what happened. And finally, the shock was over. Like, I'd fallen through my ceiling. Good night. I mean, who among us hasn't fallen through our ceiling? But I remember just calling and saying, like, dude, I'm really grateful to God that I didn't get hurt. I didn't hurt you. But more than anything, I'm really thankful because there's no way that I could have tackled that project by myself. Like, I needed the help of my friend to get that done. The moment where literally I had nowhere to put my feet he came along with a ladder. And I tell you this story because in a very similar vein, um, piled under the debt of our sins by ourselves, when we veered off the roads in our life and felt the floor give way and we've fallen, when we're making a mess of our lives, what we're trying to actually do is make it better, 
We all need a friend. Jesus is called the friend of sinners. He's called that because in some sense, we need to realize how dependent we are upon him for our salvation. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2. Essentially, thanks to God that Jesus would go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So this way, he says, you who are dead in your trespasses, you're hanging from the rafters, so to speak. The uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sins and canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Nailing it to the cross. This is the hope of the cross. That each of us were unable to help ourselves. We were dependent upon God. We needed a friend in our time of need. And Jesus came to pay the penalty for us. Friends, when you consider your debt and the hope that we have in Jesus, we are beyond thankful. Amen? When we know ourselves that we are wicked and we know Christ that he is glorious, we can then say, like Paul in 1 Timothy 1, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I think of St. Francis who wrote this, there is nowhere a more wretched and miserable sinner than I. I think of the words of John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Friends, the supremacists cannot understand the gospel because they aren't the worst person they know. As long as there's somebody else to blame, as long as there's other problems in the world, as long as there are other people that aren't doing what God wants from them, ruining society, they are above thankfulness. It's when we see our debt and our utter dependence upon God that we can be honestly, humbly changed. Thank the Lord the gospel allows us to be honest with our wicked hearts and hopeful in our perfect Savior. When we're aware of our debt, it creates an attitude of dependence to seek Jesus. And when we find that we've been forgiven, we are beyond thankful. We just sang a song moments ago. I stopped to write the lyrics down because there's a line in it that so perfectly relates to this. It says, when every eye beholds the one, our hearts were undeserving of. That is the genesis of beyond thankful living. To say, God, I don't deserve your salvation. See, nothing, nothing in this life can top a graduation from college, a 50th anniversary, a retirement from a long career, or the birth of a child. Quite like watching someone experience being forgiven in Christ tops them all. It's the most glorious thing in this life is to see someone who is in debt have their bill paid by the one who paid it all. Jesus, at the end of this passage, looks at the woman and tells her that her faith has saved her. Not her works, not what she had done for Jesus, but her faith has saved her. So go walk in peace. And so many of us here have have had, had that experience of coming to Christ to say, I don't measure up, but I trust in you, 
only to hear him say, go, walk in peace. Your faith has saved you. Which leads to my last observation from this text. I just want you to write this down. Thankfulness stems from an awareness of my debt. It requires an attitude of dependence. But check this out. Beyond thankful people are active givers. They're active givers. If I had more time, I'd preach this whole message just on this point, but I've got three minutes and so it is. People who know their debt, they know they're dependent, they're not content to simply be receivers of God's grace. Do you hear me? They're recipients for sure, but when you've been forgiven and when you've been shown grace, something feels wrong inside of you to just bottle it up and feel thankful and just to say thank you. It's as if you were building a city and all of a sudden all you did was build cul-de-sacs that just became ends in themselves. And God designed us to be thoroughfares, highways that channel and conduit and move his grace among the earth. Forgiven people give. I was going to preach this message through the eyes of Abraham. That would have been a whole different thing. I wanted to show you how all throughout Abraham's life, Abraham trusted in God, heard his voice, thanked him, built him altars. But there's this one moment in Abraham's life where he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Not just so that you can be blessed. Like, let's stop being a church that assumes that God just wants to bless us. Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that, it's purpose, you may be a, a blessing. I'm going to forgive you so that you can forgive others. I'm going to show grace to you so that you can channel my grace through this world. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. There is no possible way to live a beyond thankful life where that thankfulness moves past just our lips and just past our hearts and moves to our hands and moves in this world. And you know this. You know this. This Thursday, you're going to gather people around the table And if Thanksgiving was just some internal, private feeling or words that we said, here's how Thanksgiving could look for you. You could just gather your family around the table. Don't bother to cook a turkey. Don't bother to to say nice things about what God's done. Don't bother to put on your Thanksgiving sweater. I love those things. Just hold hands. And then silently thank God for his life, for your life, for what he's done. You say, that sounds more awkward than the dinner party here in Luke. And you're right. There's a reason that we prepare a feast. There's a reason that you're going to bring a dish. There's a reason that we say out loud to one another what it is that we're thankful to God for. Because in the sharing and in the giving and in the blessing is true thankfulness to God. You cannot be thankful if you do not give. And this woman is our example par excellence. If I think about the ways that I give in my life, I try to practice what I preach. Chris and I, we give a tithe. We give 10% of our income to the church. And um, I think about all the money that's been over the past decade of my life that I've been in ministry. And I realize that just about now, it's tipping to the point of, collectively what a year's salary would have been for me. I can't do the math, what 10 years, is, I could probably do that math, actually, that's 3,650 days, is that 
three years' time or ten years' times, whatever. I went to Bible school. <laughs> and here we see this woman hears where Jesus is and goes. Immediately, she goes. She knows her debt. She cries over her dependence upon Jesus. She gives to him. And some of us have assumed, some of us have assumed that if we are thankful to God in our lives, but reality is if you match your thankfulness to one of the characters in the story, we're not like the woman. We're more like Simon. I don't think it's accidental that a few chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus gives a hypothetical example of a Pharisee who plays this, prays this ridiculous prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. So many of us on Thanksgiving will sit down and we'll, in our hearts, say to God, God, thank you that I have provided this meal for my family. You're not dependent. You're supremacist. Just like Simon. We need to get beyond thankfulness. Go past just a heart attitude. I hope you see this, that for it to be thanksgiving requires giving. For us to Say before the Lord, all that I have is only because of you. So what do I have that you do not already have, God? What do I have that you cannot use? What can I give to be a blessing around others? We want to have people, we want to be people who have hearts that are grateful for God's grace and we act in generous giving. And this is a good season for us as a church. The opportunity is for us to show God our thankfulness and our gratitude are all around us. Like, you're going to walk out these doors here in, in, in literally 60 seconds, and uh, there's a tree that's right here that's got names of kids on it, kids who belong to families who do not have the means this year to provide gifts. They do not have the means to make ends meet. And if God has forgiven you, if God has been gracious to you, could you maybe use that as an opportunity to show your thankfulness? Could you give? We're in the middle, we've been talking about this for the past three weeks now, of a, an initiative here at our church called More and Better, where we want to make more disciples of Jesus. We want more people to know the amazing God that is out there who welcomes sinners to him and does not throw them away, who, who lifts up the lowly and puts down the high. And we want to see how God can use our campuses to do better ministry here. For so many of us, the thought of giving money to the church is such a strange thing. For others of us, the thought of giving money to the church makes us feel like we are indebting God into our service. And I'll tell you right now, if you, if, you, if you feel the compulsion to give so that God will be happy with you, you are better off not giving to more and better. The challenge for us is to give out of our brokenness, to give out of our thankfulness. In our families, in our homes, this season, we're going to find so many ways to be a blessing to our kids and to our parents and to our spouses. We give so many gifts at Christmas. I think that's wonderful. I think it's right and honorable. But there's an attitude behind it. An attitude that says, thank you, Jesus, I'm not enough, but by your grace, 
I can trust in you. And every gift then becomes a moment of worship. Every gift becomes a moment of praise. Every gift becomes beyond thankfulness. Will you stand with me? I want to read a closing benediction from the old hymn, the doxology. Doxology literally means to glorify God. We do that in giving him worship and praise and thanksgiving. Read this with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We love you. Go in God's grace.